Well, I'll begin with a moment of honesty, because preachers are nothing if not honest. I'm tired this morning and kind of cranky. Uh, I got to go to camp last week with the junior high and high school students, which was awesome. Uh, And my family and kids came along, and they had an awesome time. And then we all came home and were exhausted. And the kids' exhaustion leads to crankiness, which makes me cranky. Uh, And then this morning in my drive-in, my coffee spilled twice, which means both that my car now smells like coffee and I didn't get my coffee. So I arrived here in a cranky, tired, mean state. And it was a good reminder for me that we come into this place on Sunday mornings, not just because we have life, but also because we need it. We need to know if it's out there and if there is enough for us. I need life what the Bible calls life and hope and peace and patience to keep going in my life. And as soon as I bothered to crawl into my office and pray, I also realized that in addition to life, I need holiness, which is biblical speak for, I need to be a kinder, kinder, gentler man, less angry and more gentle and more hopeful with my children and those around me. I need life and holiness. So I wanted to begin today by looking at the first verse of our passage and first asking when it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place. Who is they? Well, they is Peter. Peter the socially awkward. Who always says that inappropriate thing that everyone else is really thinking. And Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector, whom Jesus found at his tax booth, the extortioner. James and John, whom Jesus called sons of thunder, because they were sort of the out-of-control ones. You're never quite sure what they were going to do. And say, at one point, they asked Jesus if he would like for them to call down fire from heaven to consume those around them. Peter, the socially awkward, Matthew, the tax collector, James and John, sons of thunder. Also, it says that Jesus' brothers were there. The same brothers who, in the Gospel of John, rejected Jesus and taunting him, asking if it was his hour yet. And Mary Magdalene, whom Luke tells us Jesus freed from seven evil spirits, along with the other women of ill repute who followed Jesus around. And they were gathered together in the upper room, this awkward, needy group of people, afraid, gathered together, praying to see if the Lord might help them. And that is not only the tragedy of the story, but the great comedy, the humor, that that God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, on their great mission to redeem the whole world, gathered together these people and decided to do it through them. And so he has gathered people like us together from then up until this day because he delights to work through people like us. And how does he work? Well, he works with the Holy Spirit. And I want us to see this morning that the Holy Spirit is in the business of providing what we need. The first thing is life. 
first verse says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Why wind? Why does it begin with a mighty rushing wind? Well, it might help us to know that in both Hebrew and Greek, the word for wind and the word for spirit are the same word. And so in Genesis, in the very beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, he breathed into them through their nostrils the breath of life, the wind of life. And so they breathed and became living beings. Later on in Exodus, or in, not in Exodus, in, uh, in Ezekiel, the Lord is speaking with Ezekiel and he gives him a vision, a valley of dry bones, Hundreds of people long since dead. And he gives them a vision of new life, of the bones coming together. And in Ezekiel's, before his watching eyes, he sees sinews and muscle and flesh accumulate on top of the bones. And then they stand up and breathe and have life. And the whole thing begins when the Lord sends his wind, his spirit, to blow over them and give them life. So also when Nicodemus comes to John in the Gospel of John and says, we know, and Jesus says, you don't know, you can't know unless you're born again, not from flesh, but from the Spirit. And he says, the Spirit is like the wind and blows where it wishes, and you cannot see it, but it brings life with it. Again, it's the same word. You, You don't have life in you unless you're born of the Spirit wind. And the spirit wind blows where it wishes, and you cannot see it. And so in each case, the spirit brings life. The Nicene Creed calls the Holy Spirit the Lord and giver of life. And so the first thing that happens is when this collection of people from the bottom of society in need gather together in a room, the Lord sends them the spirit of life. They need life, and he meets them with life, abundant, rushing, wind, filling the building where they were sitting. I'll never forget when my son Ian was born. I knew for nine months that he was coming, and so did Susie, but I found out on the day of his birth it was different for us because Susie had him in there, for nine months, kicking and moving. And I had just this idea that there was this thing out there. And so when he was born, it came somehow as quite a shock to me that out of this was coming a baby. And so they washed him off and handed him to me, and he opened his eyes, and he looked into my face, And I realized that what had come out was a person, a living being out of nowhere. I was totally unprepared. And so I just held him and rocked him and looked into his little eyes and said over and over and over again, Ian Remington Thompson, child of the covenant, welcome to the world. Over and over and over again in my back little corner of the room. Because we do not know 
where life comes from, nor what it looks like. It came to me as a surprise. It comes to all of us as a surprise, as an overwhelming blessing, these eyes peering out of us from nowhere. Who knew this was a living thing? It's looking at me. And so with the Holy Spirit, he comes and he brings life. And we don't know where it comes from or where it's going. But it sustains us and feeds us and gives us life, that which we need. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing life, spirit, wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Well, why fire? When the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, when the Lord leads the Israelites out of Egypt, they follow a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And when the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, is finally erected in the wilderness, the cloud enters the temple so that no one could go in there, and fire filled it by night so the Israelites could awake in the middle of the light and peer out of their tents and down the way see the glowing tent where the Lord's presence was. Because his presence in the Holy Spirit is a consuming fire. And the prophets... We hear of the refiner's fire, that which comes and melts away all that which is not good and leaves behind the pure and good and holy. And so the Holy Spirit himself is not only full of life, he is full of fire. And he is named after holiness for a reason. That his glorious presence is a consuming fire and in the previous age it was impossible to draw near him without being injured because his glory his his fullness of what is all good and true and beautiful was so overwhelming and so awe-inspiring that it would it would kill any of us to draw too near it was that good and that beautiful that righteousness and holy. And so in the present era, Jesus having died and covering our sins, this same fire which once dwelt in the temple, separated from us by the blood of bulls and goats, has now drawn near and dwells upon the heads of the saints and in the hearts of his people, bringing life and fire and holiness. That having been filled by the Holy Spirit, each one of us now has a life that we did not have before and a desire for holiness, for what is good and true and beautiful that we did not have before. My friends, any of you who has been filled with the Holy Spirit, sin will never do for you what it did before. And you will continue to struggle with it all of your days, but the fire will burn day and night without ceasing, and it will never let you go. And five years from now, you will be more holy than you are now, just as you now are more holy and good and beautiful and righteous than you were five years before. It is this burning presence of life and truth and holiness which is entered into us. Well, if I had any doubts that 
I've been outed now as an airplane enthusiast. I guess Brandon's introduction has, has made that clear. So now that we've got that out of the way, the airplane illustrations may just keep coming for a while. I want to talk about jet engines for a little while. Because I've suspected for a long time that what happens in there may actually be magic. Because you've got these heavy aluminum tubes filled with people and luggage and stuff, and then these little cylindrical things hanging under the wing, and some, somehow that sort of pushes this whole thing up into the air. And uh, I was so suspicious that what happens in there is not really possible that I had to look it up a while back. And it turns out that when you look in the front, you see these spinning blades, and behind those are more spinning blades. And what they're doing is they're taking in air and pressurizing it jamming it into an ever smaller space. And the, the most modern jet engines have a compression ratio of about 60 to 1, which means that whatever pressure is on the outside, it is 60 times that inside there. And they take this hyper-pressurized air, and into that they inject basically kerosene, and then they set it on fire, and it explodes, literally, and burns with a temperature thousands of degrees. And they take that blast and they run it through fan blades, spinning the fans around. And the pressure is so intense and the heat so intense that only the most advanced material science carefully carefully kept secret, like state secrets, is able to produce materials able to contain it. That is the reason why each jet engine is worth tens of millions of dollars. Each one of the fan blades is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. That the science is that great to contain that power. And somehow they contain this explosion, powering these fan blades, turning the big fan at front, and it launches this thing up and through the air, traveling at 500 miles an hour. And because the whole jet engine has almost no moving parts, except for the turning fan blades, they are some of the most reliable engines on Earth. And they continue running for hundreds and thousands of hours. Of all of the flights flying every day between Hawaii and the mainland, and all the years that they've been flying, do you know how many times an airplane has gotten into trouble with an engine breaking down and not being able to make the trip between here and the mainland? None. It has never happened. And so as you sail through the air with these two barely controlled explosions humming alongside you, rocketing through the air at 500 miles an hour, process that for a second, 500 miles an hour, that is what I think it's like to be strapped to the Holy Spirit. (laughs) That day or night, you may hit turbulence, you may fly through light or dark, But always accompanying you is that humming, thrumming sound of the fire burning outside at 3,000 degrees, rocketing you along with thousands of pounds of pressure, inevitably growing you, sending you in the direction you need to go. To borrow a, uh, a quote from a movie, it is the sound of inevitability bringing you life and holiness. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Holy Spirit brings life, 
And he brings the fire of holiness, that which is good and true and beautiful. And he also equips us for mission. I kind of feel like that's all I ever talk about here. But ever since I noticed it, it's everywhere in the Bible that we are equipped with life and holiness, and inevitably it leads to us reaching out towards other people. The thing to notice in this passage is it's not really something that we work up or do or realize we're called to. It just happens. That when you are strapped to the holy jet engines of Holy Spirit life, other people are inevitably brought in to what we are doing, and you become a gracious, holy, life-giving, bold person. Think about Peter, Peter the awkward. Peter, the deserter of Christ in his hour of need. Just as Brandon pointed out, 50 days ago, he could not pray through G- for Jesus through a night, could not stay with him, and could not, admitting, could not admit to knowing him. And how does that man, in the course of 50 days, get from that state to the point where, surrounded by a large crowd of people who are think that he's drunk, gets the bright idea that it would be a good idea to stand up on a chair and start yelling at everybody that this isn't the Holy Spirit, this isn't drunkenness, this is the Holy Spirit. And by the way, the, guys that you, the guy that you guys killed, he came to life, and he's king, and you guys should be part of what we're doing. And to call him Lord and King, which was the phrase that Caesar loved to address to himself. How safe of a thing do you think that is? When your emperor, who has all power, loves to be called Lord and King, for you to stand up and say, actually, the guy that you just killed, he's really Lord and King. But strapped to the jet engines of holiness and life, Peter cannot stop himself. And so people are drawn to what is said. On that day, about 3,000. The main point of this passage is about how all the nations are brought together in this work. But that's, that's the sermon I did last Sunday and, uh, and decided that it, I would not do it again. But instead to focus on what the Holy Spirit is doing in these people. So aside from mission, what does it look like practically in our life for the Holy Spirit to bring life and holiness? We'll take a look at verse 42. They, all 3,000 of them now, filled with the Holy Spirit, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And the fact that each one of these things has a the in front of it makes me think that this is, this is Luke's list of what Holy Spirit life looks like. Remember before when I said that we don't know where life comes from and we don't know what it looks like? When I think about my need for life, I do not automatically think I need a love for the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. And yet this is what the Holy Spirit does in his people. That these life-filled, holiness-filled people gather together and devote themselves the apostles' teaching 
is the New Testament, and what they were teaching about was the Old Testament. And so if the sign for us, what we should look for and expect as a sign of life in ourselves, is not even necessarily that you would love my preaching, or Pastor Todd's preaching, or any, any man's preaching, but that you would love the content of what we say as it's communicated through you to you by the Holy Spirit. That the things that you find communicated to you by the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures will become for you food and life. As Peter himself said, Lord, where else would we go? You have the very words of life. Do you have an ever-increasing love for the scriptures and the things contained therein? Are they more exciting, more thrilling to you, or even if not exciting, more somehow more deep, tear-inspiring, hopeful than they were a year ago or five years ago? Are we a community marked by our attachment and awe of the, the teaching of the apostles? And the fellowship. And what follows, I think, makes clear that what is meant by fellowship is not a simple hello over coffee before or after church. Fellowship is, is something deeper, something hard to pin down. It's the gathering together of, of God's people. Us meeting, in a sense meeting him if he teaches us through the Holy Spirit. And we are Holy Spirit-filled people then there is a sense in which we learn about our Father in heaven in a way that we can learn in no other way through through his people. When we gather together, when we share life and stories and tears and prayers and, yes, even financial resources, that we become a people who, who love being together. As one church planner I know said, Christians are to be the best party throwers because we love to celebrate what's been given to us and we love to gather together around the apostles' teaching and around the fellowship and around, as Matt read earlier, the breaking of the bread, which is miraculous because even though the second the isn't there, it's actually there in Greek. The breaking of the bread. And all the the's there make me think that they're not just speaking of meal eating, but the meal eating, the breaking of the Lord's bread, that we gather together around the apostles' teaching, we gather together with each other, and we gather together around the meal that we've been given, that this bread is Christ's body broken for you, given that you might have life and the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins, that you might have holiness. So we become a people characterized by the sharing of this meal together. And finally, by the prayers that we learn to pray more and more. Because we need more and more. That's at least what teaches me to pray, is moments of need. Where I just cry out in conversation to my Father through the Holy Spirit, whom I believe more and more is there and hears me. And will walk with me through moments of joy and stress. That we become a people of conversation. 
that in a sense it, as it does with a good friend, it never quite ends. It just, you pick it up for a while and then it trails off and then you pick it up again later. There were people filled with the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Filled with life that we did not expect that came from the Holy Spirit. One of the things I realized this morning is that um, it's good for us to see that, but we need to know where it comes from. It's not enough for me to say, you need to be people who read the Bible and pray and take communion and spend time together. For us to know, really instead, not that we need to be that, but that's what we are. It's what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. As it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that we, as we gaze upon Christ, we are being transformed from one degree to another after his likeness. That, that there is a force from outside of us, says Paul, that we are being, that is acting upon us. It is, as I said earlier, the sound of inevitability moving within us. That the power, the fire burning just outside the windows. That's what it is doing. That the first part is not about doing, but, but being. Being the people of the Holy Spirit and just recognizing, noticing, this is what he's doing. I see it. There it is. To look for it. To see the signs in your life. Where, where is my prayer that wasn't there five years ago? Where is my connection with the people around me that wasn't there five years ago? How is it that the Holy Spirit is doing this in me? And to give thanks for that. There certainly is a sense in which the Holy Spirit's work is inevitable, uh, but it also comes and goes over time. It works more in some seasons than others. And I think the takeaway there is less to, to work up some sense of holiness in ourselves and rather just to call out to the Holy Spirit that, that he might work. This, this passage, Acts 2, is the story of a revival. So if you don't believe in revivals, read Acts chapter 2. It's a revival. And there's been a few of them in history, and they've always begun with prayer. With people gathered together in a room, praying. Historians believe that the great, the first great awakening in our own country in the 1700s began with a group of college students gathered together in a classroom, reading this passage, praying for the Holy Spirit to work. And so he did. And there were five of them. And they prayed. And they prayed. And then there were ten of them. And then there were fifty. And then there were five hundred. And there were 10,000. And soon there were preachers on fire moving up and down the countryside. The Holy Spirit blows like the wind and goes where he wants, and we don't know what he does. But he does do it. And sometimes he works strongly and sometimes less strongly, but he's always there inviting us to call out to him to work. And it just may be that he may work in our own day, in us, through us, around us, on our own behalf, and for those around us. 
His work is always incomplete in this life. That's why we still come here needing life. There's a sense in which it's always in us ever since the day of Pentecost. Uh, It's as if the water of life has been splashed on us. But what we see in Jesus is someone who jumped into the swimming pool of the Holy Spirit. He lives there. He swims around in it. He, uh, he rose from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He has a redeemed body by the power of the Holy Spirit. Also, he walked through walls with this redeemed body, went where he will. He ate, showed up to the disciples and said, hey, I rose from the dead. Also, I'm hungry. Does anybody have anything from here to me to eat? He has this sort of comedic freedom and life about him. And we need to know that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a sign and a seal and a taste of what's coming. That this life, this holiness, it's a beginning. It's a fire burning, pushing us towards the trajectory. We haven't arrived. We're headed there at about 500 miles an hour. And someday we will arrive and experience the fullness of full life. Someday Jesus will say, the time has come. Toes in the water have been enough for now. It's time to jump in. Jump into the water of the Holy Spirit. And we will from that point on live filled with the life and the holiness of the Holy Spirit. If this is something that you feel the need for, that you're wanting to know about, that you're not sure that you've experienced in this life, um, it certainly does come and go. I began with the illustration of need for a reason. It's a partial reality. But let me also invite you into this, just as Peter did. He said in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This little phrase is repeated a number of times in the book of Acts, spoken by Peter and Paul and others, and also illustrated. The beautiful thing about Acts is we always get teaching combined with illustration, that we see men like Cornelius and the centurion, and the message comes to them, and they go through the same process. They repent, which means to say, I have a need of this. I am not enough. I have done wrong. 